Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. How many of you were at the service at 8 o'clock? If you haven't been, you need to be there at 11. Uh, Pastor Roger is opening a series on Lamentations. And um, boy, howdy, do we need to hear what he has to say or what the Lord has to say through him. It's really remarkable. 2 Corinthians 12. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? Why not, he replied, they're the only ones who can take it. (laughs) Paul founded the church in Corinth probably around AD 51, and he was there for about 18 months. He left in the fall of AD 52. He'd actually spent about 18 months there. Then he went back to Jerusalem, and on his third missionary voyage, he uh, built the church in Ephesus, founded the church in Ephesus. While he was in Ephesus for three years, he got word that the church in Corinth was in trouble, significant trouble, lots and lots and lots of misbehavior, sin. And uh, he wrote them a total of four letters to try and correct the situation. Two of them are lost, and the two we have remaining are 1 and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians probably written about AD 55 or thereabouts, and 2 Corinthians probably very early AD 56. So we're now finishing up our series in Corinthians. We're going to be opening, Lord willing, 2 Samuel next week. There's some quarterlies there on top of the uh, file there on the way out the door. So after Paul had left Corinth, false teachers had come to the church. They were probably Palestinian Jews, Jews, very likely what we call Judaizers. They had a strong belief in the Judeo uh, system, uh, the Jewish uh, system of sacrifices, and they want to impose Jewish customs on this Corinthian Christian church, and their mission was to discredit Paul. They were very impressed with public oratory, speaking and gifts. They really liked the public self-oriented gifts, uh, and so that's what they emphasized. They really taught a doctrine of self-centeredness. They were sexual libertines, which means they taught there was really very limited restrictions on that, which was interesting for a Jew at that period of time. They were kind of out of the mainstream to that extent. Now, in order to gain a following, they wanted the, the, the Corinthian church to follow them, so they had to attack Paul. And they attacked his credentials and his character. They smeared his ministry. They said his speech was contemptible. They said his appearance was unimpressive. They claimed to be the true apostles, and they said Paul is a false apostle, right? So some in the Corinthian church had followed them, and rejected Paul. Paul's been gone from the church for probably about three years now, three and a half years. And so now they're following them. They disregarded Paul's authority and they accused him of not loving them. You know, typical child, you don't give me my way, therefore you don't love me. Well, churches do the same thing to pastors, don't they? Not here, but it's happened. So Paul is very concerned that the church at Corinth is going to follow a false gospel and follow distruth, untruth, and actually reject Christ. So he feels that he has to defend his credentials as a legitimate apostle of Jesus Christ, one who was sent out by Jesus Christ to plant churches. So he needs to protect this church from these false shepherds. And they've attacked his credentials. So in the last couple of chapters, 11 and 12, we're going to be in chapter 12 today, he defends his apostleship. He doesn't even really like to do this. When you read these two chapters, you find out he doesn't want to go there. They're boasting about their credentials. They're saying, we've done X and Y and Z, and you haven't. So he's got to say, well, let's talk about our credentials. Let's talk about what we've done. Boasting really bothers Paul, but since they've thrown down the gauntlet, they're false prophets, they're leading the church astray, he feels like he has no choice. So they claim that they're true blue Jews. They say we're Hebrews, we're sons of Abraham, we're circumcised, we're actually born in the land of Israel. Paul says, I'm 
every bit a Jew in every respect the same. They claim to be superior servants of Christ. And they say, Paul, you're lying about your ministry. You really don't have a good service track record. Paul says, you want to talk about track records? Here's my service track record in chapter 11. He says, I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments. I have been beaten countless times, often in danger of death. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. When you got lashed by the Jewish court, they stretched you out, took your top off, 26 lashes on the back, 13 on the front. Okay, that was five times. Three times I've been beaten with rods, that was a Roman system, uh, birch rods, which was interesting, very painful. Once I was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. After one shipwreck, I spent 24 hours in the water clinging to something until he was rescued. I've been on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, many sleepless nights, often hungry and thirsty, exposed to cold and to the elements. And he said, furthermore, I have all the burden of caring for the churches. If you want to read that, that's in chapter 11, 23 to 29. It's a really daunting track record of service, service that extracted a price. Paul was old before his time. His body had taken a lot of uh, torture and pain in following Jesus Christ. Now these teachers, these false teachers who've come to Corinth have gone one step further. They've said, not only do we have a better track record than you, but we have had visions and revelations from God, right? We speak heavenly languages. We speak in tongues, uh, etc. And they believe that their visions proved that they were superior to Paul. And of course, the church was being buying into this stuff. So Paul now has to defend his apostleship to them as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And if you go to chapter 12, verse 1, he says, boasting is necessary because you're doing it. I'm going to have to demonstrate to you my track record as well, but it's not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. So you say you have visions and revelations from the Lord. Let's talk about the visions and revelations from the Lord that I've had. I want you to notice that those words are plural. Visions, plural. Revelations, plural. Paul actually had 13 revelations. One for each book of the Bible that he wrote. And if he's the author of Hebrews, he had 14 revelations. The Bible records that Jesus Christ himself personally appeared to Paul in visions at least four times. We know of four specific times where Jesus spoke to him face to face in visions. Plus, we're going to find out today he had one trip to heaven and back. Quite a resume. A vision means an appearing. It's a, it's a coming into view. It's the act of seeing something. A vision in scripture is not a state of sleeping nor is it a state of, state of normal wakefulness. It's a vision where you view the spiritual realm. You see something that you cannot see by physical sight. So it's another state of awareness, another state of consciousness. Revelation, the Greek word there is apocalypsis. It means an uncovering. So when you look at the book of Revelation, it says the book of Revelation, it means an uncovering, an unveiling, right? Uh, it's a revealing, it's a disclosure of divine truth. So Paul has had a number of revelations where God has disclosed divine truth to him. That's obviously something that we humans are not in control. Paul is now going to give you some specifics. Look at verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up into the third heaven. Now, you'll notice immediately that Paul is not using the word I. He's not talking first person singular. He's talking third person singular. He's downplaying himself. He doesn't want to get too close to this. He really doesn't want to talk about it. He's very reluctant to even bring it up. So he's talking about himself in the third person. I, I, I know him, man. He don't want to take credit for this. He says 14 years ago. He wrote this book in AD 56. So 14 years ago would probably be around AD 42. Interesting that in AD 42, he had already met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, but he had not yet started this public ministry. So this revelation, this being caught up into the third heaven, occurred before he began planting churches, before his first missionary journey. He is in Christ. 
He knows Jesus, he's been converted, but he has not begun his public ministry at that point. Interesting, God may have given Paul this revelation, this third heaven revelation, to give him hope and comfort. Because God had told Ananias when he, he baptized Paul, he said, I'm gonna show Paul everything he's going to suffer for my sake. So Paul knew the suffering that was in front of him. It's interesting that God may have given him a vision of heaven just as encouragement, just as here's what's awaiting you at the end of your life based on all the sufferings you're going to have to come. Paul is pretty, he really doesn't want to talk about this. He hasn't mentioned it in 14 years. How many of you could get to heaven and back and not talk about it? I mean, most people would write a bestseller. Many claim to have been to heaven and written it, right? He uses the word caught up. He said, I was caught up into the third heaven. The, the, the Greek word there is hopazo, which means to seize or carry off by force, to snatch out or to grasp and carry away. It's the same word most of you know that's referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talks about the rapture of the church. We will be raptured from planet Earth when Jesus Christ comes to receive his church. He's gonna catch us away. He's gonna snatch us by force. Uh, that's the Greek word harpazo. So Paul was literally seized by God and uh, taken into the third heaven. Typically in scripture, the first heaven refers to the atmosphere. That's the atmosphere is where birds fly, right? That's what we breathe. We breathe the first heaven. The second heaven is generally referred to as interstellar space. That's where the stars exist. That's what we would call the space-time matter energy continuum. The third heaven in scripture is the dwelling place of God. So this is God's throne room. When you read Revelation, when you read Daniel, chunks of Ezekiel, etc., Zechariah, and you, there's a description of heaven, they're talking about the throne room of God. That's typically known as the third heaven where God dwells. Verse three. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So Paul repeats the same phrase twice, right? He's the second time he, he repeats the fact that this vision or revelation was so captivating that he didn't even know if it was in his body or out of his body. So he went to heaven, whether in a vision, but he didn't know whether his body was with him or his body wasn't with him. That's the altered state he was in at that point in time. You know, how many of you have ever been involved in something and it was so captivating that you forgot yourself? You, you forgot yourself, right? You were, you were engrossed in whatever it was that you were not self-conscious, right? You know who does that really well? Children. They're involved in something and they're neck deep in it and they're not even aware of themselves. We tend to be pretty self-conscious, you know, we pride ourselves, we're paying attention, right? Paul says, this was so captivating, I didn't even know if my body was with me or not. He's not conscious of self because of the captivation of what he's seeing and hearing when he's there. That's how compelling heaven is. He was caught up into paradise by God. And the, the word paradise here, Paradisios is it's a Persian word. And it literally means a walled garden or a walled enclosure, an enclosed park or royal garden that's, that's surrounded by walls. Years and years ago, there was a movie out called The Secret Garden. Have you ever seen The Secret Garden? Some of you like classics. Uh, it, it literally, it features a walled garden. It had been locked and overgrown, etc. but that's kind of a picture of it at that point in time. Royal parks or, or these royal gardens were exquisitely manicured. If you've ever been to the Bouchard Gardens up in Victoria, you understand what a, uh, a manicured garden looks like. By the way, it takes 36 gardeners to keep six and a half acres. But they sculpt every, have you been to any of the Bouchard Gardens? Anybody been? Yeah, it's gorgeous. And you would like to have your backyard look like that, but you just don't want to pay 36 gardeners to, to get it done. And none of us are going to work that hard, right? So low maintenance, right? Well, these were not low maintenance gardens. These royal parks and royal guards were exquisitely manicured and they were designed to convey extreme beauty and extreme security. They were walled in, so for security, but they were also very beautiful. And heaven or paradise 
is going to be exactly like that. Indescribably beautiful and eternally safe, right? It's interesting, uh, Jesus referred to paradise when he was on the cross and he talked to the thief, the repentant thief, and he said what? Today you will be with me in paradise, the third heaven where God dwells. Paul says, I went to the third heaven and I heard inexpressible words. Words that are so lofty, that are so high, uh, they were almost too lofty to be repeated based on their holy sacredness. And also these words were in a heavenly language and they were too difficult to verbalize. So what Paul experienced in the third heaven was almost beyond human language. You'll notice he's very, very brief in his description of this. He doesn't give us a lot of details. He gives us almost no details. Interesting. Paul is overwhelmed not by what he sees, what does it say? He's overwhelmed by what he heard. Interesting. Whatever he heard, the voice of God, the voice of angels, heavenly beings, it says he was forbidden to repeat, which is interesting because if he was forbidden to repeat it, it indicates that at least he understood something of what was said. That's kind of interesting. Human from planet Earth, speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, goes to heaven and understands the language of heaven to some degree, but he's forbidden to repeat on earth what was spoken in heaven. Now the Corinthian teachers, by contrast, they're bragging about their ability to speak in tongues. Man, I speak in heavenly languages. You were there Sunday when I was babbling and I was giving you this heavenly language. No one understood it, but it was God talking to me, etc. Paul says, the heavenly secrets I heard when I was in heaven were so inexpressibly divine that I was forbidden to even repeat them. Heaven is so different from earth. It's so other than earth that human language struggles to comprehend it. Human language struggles to communicate what it's like. The apostle John in Revelation 1, sees a vision of the glorified Christ, and he describes it in, in Revelation 1, 12 uh, through 16. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, which when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a two sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. John is trying to describe the glorified risen Christ and he uses the word like. He's using human metaphors, human language, trying to describe what God looks like, what Jesus Christ looks like. His face was like the sun. Well, that's the brightest thing that they had seen in that era. So he's using metaphors from earth to try and describe what's in heaven. So he's He's describing a reality, reality that's so far beyond earth that he, he's, he's looking for metaphors to try and describe it. Every time in scripture we see human beings encountering heaven, we see them overwhelmed by it. Job, Isaiah, Daniel, Paul, the apostle John are, are some of the folks that had encounters with the holiness of heaven and they were just overwhelmed by it. Job saw God, Job 42, and he said, I have heard of thee, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. There is a vast difference between hearing about God and encountering God face to face. Some of you know the difference between knowing about God and knowing God, right? There is a significant difference between having a Facebook friend three generations removed and having dinner with somebody, isn't there? 
face to face, eye to eye, skin to skin, you see them. That's just a small word picture here. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he sees God high and lifted up, seated on the throne, cherubim, seraphim surrounding the throne, the smoke fills the temple, and he sees God face to face, high and lifted up, and his response is, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. He was conscious of his own filth and his own sinfulness when he was in the presence of heaven, when he was in the presence of holiness. I'm very convinced that we have many, many, many sins in our life that we have grown comfortable with. I don't even know if we see them anymore, right? That's one of the mercies of God is that he gives us his word and he gives us his spirit and he turns the spotlight on and he says, that cancer I need to deal with. Let me deal with it. And you go, no, 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 I'm, I'm real comfortable with that cancer. I'm, I'm, it's just a small tumor, it's real small. I promise you it won't grow. It's, it's benign. Sin is never benign. And Isaiah, when he comes in the presence of God, is so conscious of his own sin. Daniel has an encounter with an angelic creature in Daniel 10, verse 8. He says, So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to deathly pallor, He's white as a ghost, and I retained no strength. Later on, you're going to see when he has an encounter with this angel, he literally falls on the ground, falls asleep in a coma. He's encountering the holiness of heaven, and it just drains his strength. We have no idea the purity and power of heaven. The apostle John, in, in Revelation verse 1, verse 17, he says, When I saw the glorified Christ, I fell at his feet as a dead man. John had no strength when he was facing the holiness of heaven. So Paul has been to heaven, he's been back, and he's not talked about it for 14 years, and you say, why not? Verse 5. On behalf of such a man, someone who went to heaven and back, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast. Except in regard to my weaknesses. I'm willing to brag about my weaknesses, but I'm not going to boast about being in heaven. Verse 6. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I'll be speaking the truth. I did go to heaven. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit with me, credit me with more than he sees or hears from me. Here's the principle. Everything we say and do should focus attention on Jesus, not on us. Paul is careful not to take any credit for his journey in heaven. None. He didn't choose to go there. He didn't choose to come back. That is God's prerogative. He hasn't mentioned this in 14 years. He doesn't want to talk about it now. He doesn't want people to pay attention to the spectacular. Oh, you went to heaven. Oh, I guess your plan for evangelism is better than my plan for evangelism because you went to heaven and saw God. He doesn't want any of that. Even though this vision is true, Paul doesn't want anybody to evaluate him based on this supernatural experience. Now, the false teachers in Corinth, man, they're bragging. Oh, I went to heaven, saw God. God told me, blah, blah, blah. Have you ever talked to anybody who uses that term a lot? God told me Tuesday morning, 8 o'clock, to do this. Right? Have you heard that? Anybody? Has God ever talked to you and told you to do something? Answer, yes. Of course he has. But when people use that phrase, I've heard people on TV talk about stuff God told them to do that absolutely contradicted scripture. Clearly, if God told you to do it, it will agree with scripture at that point in time. But Paul doesn't want to do anything that distracts attention away from Jesus Christ. So if Paul had openly shared this vision, he'd have been the focus of people's praise. They'd have wanted to follow him because of this event, not because of the glory of Jesus Christ. And today you can go to Christian bookstores or online and there's all sorts of personal accounts of supernatural experiences. And I'm not judging those, but I am saying evaluate everything by God's word. Evaluate everything by God's word. What we know about heaven is what God's word says about heaven. I really don't care if you've been there because we can be fooled. We are fallen, fallible creatures. Evaluate everything by God's word. If some account of heaven does not agree with Bible and it does not exalt Jesus Christ, it's not from God. Okay? Verse 7. 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Here's the principle. This is hard. Suffering is a gift from God that prevents pride and teaches humility. The word thorn here is scolops. It literally is a pointed stake, a sharpened pointed stake that was used for impaling people and torturing them. It was a sharpened wooden staff this, this thorn is not the thorn of a rose bush. I mean, a little thorn of a rose bush, it hurts, but you'll heal from that, right? Paul is talking about being impaled, pinned to the ground with a wooden stake, driven through his chest, writhing in pain due to extreme trauma. Now, we don't know exactly what this thorn is. Paul, once again, doesn't give us a lot of details any more than he gives us details about his journey to heaven. There's a lot of speculation surrounding about what this thorn was. Some commentators think it was a specific physical disorder like epilepsy, malaria, leprosy, migraine headaches, speech impediment, inflammation of the eye, ophthalmology. He, he says, see what large letters I'm writing at the end of one of his books. So there was some speculation he had eye troubles. But the word for flesh here, sarks, doesn't refer only to physical flesh, but it can refer to whatever is mortal, whatever is worldly, whatever is flawed. So the word Thorn in the flesh could refer to things like persecutions, temptations, critical people, so on and so forth. It doesn't necessarily have to be a physical uh, in your flesh thing. John Calvin thought it referred to spiritual temptations. Martin Luther described it as temptations and persecution. Roman Catholics believe it refers to sexual temptations, so those are not necessarily physical uh, pains, but nonetheless, they're very much thorns in the flesh. Paul, however, give us some clues. Paul says that this thorn in the flesh was what? A messenger from Satan to torment him. Messenger, angelo satana, right? It's an angel, it's a sent one. An angel means a sent one, a messenger. This is a messenger from Satan. In scripture, the word angel always refers to an actual person who brings a message. So Paul received a messenger from Satan an angel from Satan that he describes as this thorn in the flesh to tempt him. Now, Satan's angels are demons. We know that. They're evil, fallen creatures who followed Satan in rebellion against God between the creation of the universe and the fall in, in Genesis 3. They are at war with God. Fallen angels are, of course, at war with God's people because they follow Satan. Satan obviously wants to disrupt the message of the gospel, right? He's tried to kill Paul on multiple occasions. He's not going to give up trying to kill Paul, right? So the word torment here is an interesting word. It means the word buffet. That is not the word buffet. I know some of you torment yourselves by going to buffets. Actually, you don't torment yourself at the buffet. You torment yourself when you leave the buffet. Why did I go back for the third plate? The word buffet literally means to lash, to shatter, to devastate by blows. The Greek word for this word buffet has to do with knuckles, which is the bone that you smack somebody with, right? It's the same word that, that the Gospels used to describe how the Roman soldiers beat Jesus in the face or buffeted him in the face with their, with their knuckles. That's the same thing. It's literally, to me, to be devastated uh, by blows. So this thorn in the flesh for Paul was not an incidental Pain. It was persistent. It was ongoing. It plagued him. It had no relief. And it was enormously, enormously costly. How many remember Jacob? Jacob? Jacob and Esau? Jacob, the name means supplanter or deceiver because he lied to his father twice and stole the, lied to uh, uh, his father to steal the birthright, the blessing rather. Jacob the supplanter has a mano a mano wrestling match one night at the Brook Jabbok with who? The pre-incarnate Christ as the angel of the Lord. So Jacob has a wrestling match with God himself. 
And God is trying to leave before daybreak because he doesn't want Jacob to see him. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. So God does bless him, gives him a new name, Israel, which means he wrestles with God. That's what Israel means. However, God touched his hip and made him lame. For the rest of his life, Jacob hobbled on that leg when he walked. That was a reminder that encounters with God change you. You cannot have an encounter with God and not be changed. Some commentators suggest that Paul's thorn in the flesh were the actual demon-inspired false teachers that dogged his steps. When you look at Paul's ministry from church to church to continent to continent, behind him there always came Judaizers and false teachers to try and corrupt the gospel. Almost every case they followed right behind him to try and corrupt the gospel. Obviously, this church in Corinth has been invaded by false teachers, and false teachers are always inspired by Satan. So these demon-directed false teachers are creating chaos in this church, and they're driving a stake in Paul's heart. The church he had poured himself into that he wanted to be proud of is breaking his heart with their ongoing sin. So we don't know what the um, thorn was. We do know what the thorn did. And I think it's really good that we don't know what the thorn is. Because if we knew what his specific pain was, we could either identify it or we would not be able to identify it. The truth of it is, all of us in this room have thorns in the flesh. Hebrews 12 refers to something similar when he says we have besetting sins. We have things that routinely cause us pain and suffering. How many of you would say, yes, I have some difficulties in my life? I've got some heartbreak. I've got some stakes. Every time I think about this child, grandchild, hell, finances, relationship, whatever, oh, oh, right? That little stab, that's a small version of a thorn in the flesh. This thorn in the flesh, even though it was a messenger of Satan, ultimately came from who? From God. Satan intends his attacks for evil, but God uses even Satan's evil for ultimate good. See, God is never the author of evil. If there's evil in the world, God is not the author of that, but he causes what? All things to work together for good. Does God cause Satan to work together for good? In the end, he does, right? Satan attacked Job. Remember Job 2? Satan attacked Job. But only with God's permission and only within God's limits. Someone has said to me once, if Satan's on a leash, God needs to shorten it up. <laughs> yeah, well, God has Satan precisely where he wants him at this point in time. But God's going to use even the evil intentions of the prince of darkness to accomplish his purposes. Joseph's brother sold him in slavery and they intended it for evil. They wanted rid of him. They were jealous of him. He was the 17-year-old dad's favorite. Years later, after they are in Egypt and Joseph's the prime minister, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. As a matter of fact, God, according to his eternal, infinitely wise plan, allowed Satan to tempt Eve in the garden, knowing that she would sin knowing that Adam would follow her. God always has purpose in everything he does. So God allows his servant Saul to suffer tremendously at the hand of Satan. Why? Well, Saul, Paul tells us. God's purpose in Paul's pain was to prevent him from being puffed up with pride. This is a fascinating paradox. God uses Satan, the proudest of all creatures, to teach Paul humility. Is that not a paradox? Satan is trying to destroy Paul. God's using Satan for Saul's ultimate benefit. Paul's pain was prescribed by God in order to prevent Paul's pride. I was thinking of Megan when I wrote this one, but God is like an infinitely wise pharmacist who precisely combines various elements into the precise formula that he knows we need at any given moment. So tomorrow you're going to encounter events. You're going to encounter circumstances, people, etc., etc. All of those have been preordained by your Heavenly Father. 
Every phone call you receive tomorrow, everybody you run into at the store, every physical thing, mental thing, everything that happens to you is already known by your Heavenly Father. It's already been filtered. And he has put together the precise combination of elements into his formula that he knows what you need at the moment. See, we don't want to take the medicine. We go, God, let me tweak that formula a little bit. A little more strychnine would be good. I like strychnine. Makes me feel really good, right? That's what we do. The Lord knows what we need. He knows when we need. He knows how we need it. God knows that pain is always preferable to pride. So if you're in pain, maybe, just maybe, I know you're very nice people, but just maybe, God wants to prevent pride in your life. God knows that suffering is always preferable to sin. Say yes. I'm not convinced we always believe that. Sometimes we say, Lord, it's just a small sin and the suffering is so hurtful. Can't we just, can't you tolerate anything? Not if it's going to kill you. We have a God who loves us. He's the loving Heavenly Father. And he wants us holy like him because he knows that our holiness is ultimately the only way we're going to be happy. His glory is our good. So here's the problem and the paradox. Ran into Daryl the other day at Trader's, Trader Joe's, Friday night. So he's ready to hear a little bit of this. I'm amazed he came back. <laughs> Let me give you the frame of reference that Daryl and I were talking about. God's work depends on God's power, not human power. The only thing we humans contribute to God's work is our availability. Isaiah said to God, what? Here am I, send me. So here's the metaphor. God is the river. We are the riverbed. God is the water. We are the faucet. God is the sunlight. We are the windows. God chooses to do much of his supernatural work on earth through human vessels. Christians are what? The body of Christ. We are his hands, his feet, his eyes, and his ears. But Jesus Christ is the head of the body. He is in control. He tells the hands and the feet what to do. Just as the sun is most clearly seen through clean windows, so God is most clearly seen through humble people. Our sinful pride wants to take credit for the results that only God can produce. Our pride is like dirt on a window pane that obscures the view of the sun. Our pride is like the plaque that clogs up our arteries and impedes the flow of life-giving blood from the heart to the rest of the body. Now, Paul has had multiple visions, multiple revelations from God. His temptation for pride would be irresistible. The Apostle Paul struggled with spiritual pride. He was a Pharisee. He came by it honestly. He had been taught from day one. God knows that that pride would have been killed his future ministry. God wanted to pour more of himself through Paul, through the vessel of Paul in order to save more people. But if Paul became proud, his pride would misrepresent God and mislead people. If you take credit for what only God can do, people will follow you and not him. And you will lead them astray every time. You and I are water pipes. You and I are faucets that share the life-giving water of Jesus with a thirsty world. Here's the word for you and I today. Don't confuse the faucet with the water. A faucet without water is useless. Amen? Pride clogs our faucets. Suffering is the rotor-rooter that God uses to clean out our pride and produce humility. Does that make sense? Verse 8. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that this might leave me. Here's the principle. God uses suffering to deepen our relationship with him through prayer. Now, living with this kind of pain is enormously difficult. It was unrelenting. And I want you to notice, what did Paul do with his pain? He took his pain to the Lord. He didn't call up his friends and whine about it. He didn't post his troubles on Facebook. He took it to the Lord in prayer. And God uses suffering to draw us to himself. 
I'm sure that Paul felt that this thorn was hindering his ability to preach the gospel. I'm sure he asked God to remove this thorn so that he'd be more effective in ministry. God, I'm in pain all the time. Can't you remove this thorn so that I'll be more effective in fulfilling the gospel ministry you've called me to do? By the way, this was not just a little simple prayer request. I will guarantee you Paul was fasting and persistently praying for days at a time. And he says, I did it on three separate occasions. I implored God, right? Implored means intense pleading, desperate begging. And we go, well, that's pretty intense. Well, yeah, when you're in pain, you will do that. My most intense prayer times have come at the point of intense pain. I wish I could tell you that I prayed intensely all the time. It's not true. God knows that. So suffering is a gift for lots of reasons. It prevents pride and keeps humility, but also draws us closer to him because we're desperate for him. You know, when you ask God to do something for you, you're going to get one of three responses, right? Number one is yes. Number two is no. Number three is I heard silence and I heard wait. What I didn't hear, and I'm really proud of you, is maybe. God never says maybe. It's either yes, no, or wait. And sometimes God is silent, and that can mean wait. But you know what it does mean? Silence always means wait on the Lord, Isaiah 40, right? Now, Paul didn't get yes, and he didn't get wait. He got no. Definite no, but he also got a promise, verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Here's the principle. God uses suffering to destroy our self-sufficiency and teach us God dependency. God uses suffering to destroy our self-sufficiency and teach us God dependency. Now, he got this, he got an answer, and it's a once-for-all, settled response. Every time he asked God, he got the exact same answer. My grace is sufficient for you right where you are now. Some of you are asking God to take away something out of your life. You wanted to remove it. Whatever it is, a problem, a person, a pain, a need, God, remove it. Some of you in this room right now are hearing, my grace is sufficient for you in your current circumstance now. Grace appears 18 times in 2 Corinthians. Most of the time it refers to God's unmerited favor. Here it refers to God's unlimited power. So when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, he says, my unlimited power is sufficient. And sufficient means to be possessed of unfailing strength. It means enough to satisfy the need. God says, Paul, no matter what your need is, my grace is sufficient. It's enough to meet your needs. So whatever your needs are, whatever my needs are, God says, I'm not going to remove the problem. I'm giving you divine power to live with the problem. Here's what happens. How many of you, when you ask God for something, would rather get a yes than a no? Go ahead, let's be honest. You know why we want a yes? Because we're convinced it's a good request. Right? We're asking, well, I'm asking for a good thing. Removal of pain, whatever it is, it's a good request, right? Here's the problem. We're convinced that we know what to ask for, right? Sometimes when God says yes to our request, you know what we do? We say, thanks God for your help. From here on, I can handle it myself. Don't we? That's back to pride. That's back to self-sufficiency. That's back to stuck on stupid, right? Sometimes we ask for the wrong things, and that's why God says no. We pray for lighter burdens. God says pray for stronger backs. We pray for an easier path. We ought to pray for tougher feet. We pray for fewer problems. We ought to pray for God's solutions. Now, there are some things that God will remove from our lives, but there are some things that God wills us to live with, in some cases, for the rest of our lives. Well, whether God says yes, no, or wait, he always has an, an eternal purpose. And he tells Paul, my eternal purpose is, here's the reason, my power is perfected in your weakness. 
And this word perfected, teleo, means to finish. My power is consummated. My power is fulfilled. My power is completed in your weakness. God's power increases continually as human power decreases. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of God dependency. And when humans trust in their own power, they do not trust on God's power. John MacArthur once said, I thought this was an extraordinarily insightful quote, there are not very many people who are weak enough to be powerful. There are many people who are strong enough to be impotent. Think about it. Human power never accomplishes God's purposes. Only when humans are humble enough to stop trusting in themselves will they depend completely on God's power. These false teachers claim that God's power is revealed through visions and revelations and supernaturals. And God says God's power is accomplished and human weakness is most evident. Weakness does not prevent ministry. Weakness is a prerequisite for ministry. Because only when suffering reveals our weakness will we humble ourselves enough to surrender and let God do it his way. Verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. Read verse 10. I read this and I'm going, oh, I am well content with weaknesses. I am well content with insults. I am well content with distresses. I am well content with persecutions. I am well content with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the principle. God's power is released through us and in us when we accept suffering for Christ's sake. Now, God, Paul has a new perspective on pain. He has a new perspective on weakness. He rejoices in his weaknesses because it says that God's power is going to dwell in me. That literally means when you and I are weak, God takes up residence. His power takes up residence in our weaknesses. It literally means he sets up a tent. God's power sets up a tent in our weaknesses and his power works in and through us. See, pain is not always your enemy. You ever thought about that? Many, many, many times pain is your best friend. Many people with diabetes, I had a neighbor across the street 40 years ago, completely lost feeling in her feet with diabetes. Very dangerous. The nerves there did not transmit sensations of pain. She didn't know when she stubbed her toe. She didn't know when you cut her foot or bruised it. And she wasn't very good about wearing the shoes. So she'd run into a door frame, couldn't feel a thing, right? You'd, you'd go to the house and there'd be trails of blood with her foot. She wouldn't feel it, right? No pain mechanism. Pain is feedback that tells you that something's going on that needs your attention. See, Paul now views that pain, that suffering is valuable because the weaker he is, the more opportunity there is for God to work. This week, every single one of us in this room is going to experience difficulty. I promise you, you will. You'll have some pain this week. And every one of those pains is father filtered. Not one thing hits your desk that didn't cross his desk first and God has purpose in every detail. Don't waste the pain. Ask God to accomplish what he wants to through that pain. Back in 1989, one of my favorite musicians named Steve Green wrote a song called The Refiner's Fire. If you've not heard that, YouTube it. Your flesh will despise this. Your spirit will crave it. The chorus to The Refiner's Fire says, The refiner's fire has now become my soul's desire. Purged and cleaned and purified, that the Lord be glorified. He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose the refiner's fire. God will use suffering to refine us, to purify us. And now all we see is the pain of that. But when we're in heaven, we will be so grateful. His love wouldn't let us go. How many of you ever tried to talk your children into not doing something that you knew was harmful, but they were convinced was good? We're children. 
Our Father says, I know what's best. I'm arranging your life circumstances to produce in you Jesus Christ. And in your weakness, in your humility, in your suffering, I move into that and divine power now works in and through you. Before Tom comes up, let me go ahead and just review. Point one, everything we say and do should focus attention on Jesus, not on us. Suffering is a gift from God that prevents pride and teaches humility. God uses suffering to deepen our relationship with him through prayer. God uses suffering to destroy our self-sufficiency and teach us God dependency. And lastly, God's power is released through us when we accept suffering for Christ's sake. See, you don't have to embrace suffering. Paul didn't like the pain, but he loved what the pain did in his life because it honored Jesus Christ and made him a vessel fit for the master's use. I know this is a very difficult message in some ways. I struggle with this this week. My spirit embraces this and my flesh looks at the pain and goes, right? Suffering is not something I'm a big fan of, but I understand my craving for the master is deeper than my craving for my comfort. Comfort be hanged. You're going to get comfort where? Your joy is in heaven, but the Father who loves us says, I will carry you through the suffering that I bring in your life. I will carry you through it. Trust me. I'm your Father. I love you. I love you guys too. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.